welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at Austin Art Talk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. How would you communicate the enormity of a glacier? or the complexity of global warming, with a sculpture or drawing? Would you travel to Iceland to see for yourself the scale of the issue, and personally trace the many miles of ice that have been lost? Damien Lester did just that, motivated by a desire to go beyond just looking at images on the internet. Completing two residencies in Iceland in the last year allowed him to explore different materials and experiment in a studio, while also exploring the ephemeral landscape of that distant place, while contemplating a very serious issue that affects us all. The approach that he chose was to pare down everything to the most simple and basic forms. The current results of his work and travel around the issue of climate change is the exhibition Serene Disturbance on display at Grey Duck Gallery until October 28, 2018. If you are in the Austin area, definitely make a point to check out this beautiful work after hearing the interview. Here is Damien. Okay, Damien, thanks for being on my show. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for having me because we're at your house. (laughs) I thought maybe we could start by talking about your current show at Grey Duck and kind of what the genesis was of that, which I believe was a residency that you did just over a year ago in Iceland, right? And a trip to Alaska and some other trips. Right. uh, I guess it was last August 2017 was my first residency uh, in in Iceland, um, which I did on the East Coast. And um, it's called the Fish Factory. It's an art center there in one of the fjords. Um, that was more of a remote residency in the sense that residency itself was in an abandoned uh, fish factory that had been empty for quite some time, maybe a, yeah. de- a decade or more. And uh, the couple or the group that now runs the factory went to the town, and it was going to be demolished. And it was going to cost. Um, a considerable amount for the town to tear it down. So they ended up working out a deal where they bought it for, you know, practically nothing. And uh, in the event to turn it into a community and art center. So that's kind of how that got started. And they've been doing all the work, most of it, and the build out and everything themselves because the place was in extreme disrepair. It's wow. it's a huge place, and you can walk through it, and it's just like 
full of this crazy stuff. You know? oh, nice. And you can use any of that for your work or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's right on the water, of course, being a fish factory. But yeah. And that was you know, one of the main industries of that little town. And uh, when that kind of collapsed, a lot of the residents moved. And uh, I think now there's less than 150 people that actually live in the town that are actually on the census. And a lot of those are people who've gone away to school or other things and just haven't come back. So they're still in the books, but like, you know, it's a very small town. It, it was amazing, amazing to be there. Any direction you go, it's like you're, you can hike out into the mountains and the fjords or along the coast. And um, just having a month uh, there, like my time was like the studio or going on hikes and walks. Um, and then my second residency was just this past June in Reykjavik. And that's on the West Coast. And that was a total different experience in the mm. sense that it's, I mean, Reykjavik's the largest town city in Iceland. That being said, it's like 150,000 people. Mm -hmm. And then I think the next size town is around 40,000. But to be that small is has pretty amazing collection of like art museums and galleries and concert hall and uh iceland itself gets about three million tourists a year now so you know pretty much everyone goes through yeah Reykjavik right. so it's quite the little metropolitan town and so were these two residencies connected in any way as far as like the series of work that you were creating did it all kind of culminate in your serene disturbance show that's at gray duck right now when Jill uh, from Grey Duck like asked me to do this show, you know, I, I was already kind of in the middle of working with this somewhat new series of work with the uh, the panels and uh, the th three dimensional uh, geometric constructions that were based on sort of the climate change and the melting of glaciers and using uh, glaciers as sort of my theme, uh, so the impetus of the work and the sh like deriving the shapes. But prior to these trips, you know, I was getting into this work and I was using um, just images I pulled off the internet or whatnot, you know, tracing some of those to get some of the mm -hmm. general shapes. And I took that to, to a certain point and I felt like if I'm going to continue this line of work, I need to really know what it is I'm doing or trying to achieve or experience it's one thing kind of like painting a picture of a photograph, but it's another thing just being there and, and experiencing everything with all your senses. Yeah, so with the Serene Disturbance show, I knew it was going to be based on sort of this ice glacier theme. And then the trips to Iceland were kind of the, I mean, it's the reason I went to Iceland was, you know, to experience these different environments with the glaciers. It must be pretty amazing to have so much time to just dedicate to working without any distractions. I mean, it just seems like you'd be able to make a huge amount of progress. That was an, another interesting thing because I'm there. It's like I can't delve into making like finished or full work. Oh, so, okay. But right. which was good in the sense that it gave me all this free time to just really explore different avenues or different materials or just, just really kind of – I did a lot of drawings and sketches. A few ended up in this show or just uh, using the shapes, playing around with the shapes in a different format than I would have, say, if I was back here at home in the studio – I would have been making three-dimensional models, making sculptures, and not really kind of explored these other avenues with the work. Like um, now, and part of it is coming out of my experience in Iceland, is making drawings or other works based on the sculpture, based on the shapes of sculpture. And that was a big way, a part of the Serene Disturbance, where all the drawings, outlined drawings in the show, were from the sculptures. Mm -hmm. um, Isn't there a story about a single rock kind of inspiring the work? Yeah, I mean, it was overwhelming to kind of 
after being to Iceland and just the huge variety of the landscape and all the elements from volcanic to the glaciers and the icebergs, trying to figure out how to filter that into a cohesive solo show. I don't know, I couldn't sort out the best way to kind of incorporate everything. So my work is really based on sort of pairing everything down to like a very simple, like basic elements, sort of the minimal amount and, you know, just taking these shapes down to like a very simple geometric form. Um, so I was at a glacier at the lagoon there and it was just littered with a bunch of rocks that were all breaking and cracking apart. And, you know, part of this is just the lagoon and the rocks were left from the retreating glacier. And I don't know, I just kind of picked up a random rock that caught my eye. And uh, at the residency, I'd been making paper patterns off rocks because, you know, I couldn't take a lot of rocks back. When I went to the residency in Alaska, I mailed two boxes back of rocks, <laughs> like 70 pounds worth of rocks, like mailed back. Okay. So I couldn't really do that from Iceland. So, I started making patterns off these rocks and inevitably, you know, it's a simplified pattern that was like a geometric pattern from that one rock. Like I just used that to kind of represent like everything, like all my experiences, like all the thoughts and ideas and just uh, experiences over the past year just kind of just went into arbitrarily picking out this one rock. Yeah. And then I used that to break apart, create the patterns into 12 faces, which is what the rock had. And from those 12 faces to create sculptures, like 12 sculptures from those sides, those faces created the, the outlines, I kind of deconstructed it or broke those pieces down even more to like outlines and then, yeah, kind of carried on from there. So that was kind of a new direction for me in the sense of simplifying everything to you know such a degree and then repeating that, those units, using that repetition to create other forms and sculptures. But, Isn't there something that kind of relates to that that I'd read on your website about the presumed permanence of life in nature? Isn't that about that simplification? Yeah, I mean, because I've never been to a glacier, you know, I just had this vision of them being, in which they are, these giant massive things that were just there, you know, I never really thought about how much of a a living kind of organism they are, like, growing and retreating and, uh, you know, melting and expanding and changing. Like, when we went on hikes on the glacier, it's like the pathway changes constantly, you Mm. know, because of the nature of the glacier and the route, you know. But also, you know, with climate change, like the glaciers, these things that have been around for thousands and thousands of years are disappearing. So it's like this object that I felt was like this permanent structure is like has this really ephemeral and permanent quality. I'm I'm wondering what what did you learn in your research and talking to people and being there in person? I just think about how we hear news about glaciers melting, but it's like it's so far away. It feels like how do you really know what it is? I mean, what did you what did you actually find out when you were there? Talking to people, how people there feel about climate change or what kind of what's like the real story there if it's anything different from what we hear over here? You know, and what were your, you know, impressions of the severity of it? As far as the glaciers themselves, like, um, that's why James Baylog, he's had a, a project a little over a decade now where he's put up cameras at many glaciers kind of globally. And for no other reason, just 
to record the glaciers themselves. And if you look uh, at his website, it's pretty dramatic. The sped up view of those, like uh, like receding and then growing, and then just inevitably like continually receding more than they're expanding. And because uh, when you go to a glacier and you see it, and you're like, oh, this is an amazing thing. It's like so much ice it's like it's unbelievable but then to realize that it was like 10 miles back that way you know not that long ago or when we went hiking on the glacier wearing the giant like bus like going up there they're like okay this is where the glacier used to be so you need to keep for miles and miles like traveling over rock until we get to the foot of the glacier now or we went canoeing in a lagoon and this is the first year uh at this glacier that they were having uh, canoe trips around these small icebergs and in this lagoon because this lagoon didn't exist five years ago. Besides from that, like just in Alaska and Iceland and other locations, like it's not only obviously affecting tourism, but it's also affecting industry itself and business and uh, migration of animals. I mean, the climate's warmer, so it's creating different weather patterns, weather effects, which creates issues for the plants and animals, which is food for other species. And just everything's kind of linked together in a sense. And when pieces of this chain starts breaking down, it starts to affect everything and everyone. And do you feel like that's the direct cause is the actions of man? And do you feel like that drives your work, like kind of wanting to communicate that? Well, I mean, my interest is obviously, and to a certain degree, like I'm using global warming as sort of a jumping off point to create my sculpture and my art. And uh, it's kind of signifies for me um, the effects that man has on the environment, but also like what is our issue with uh, not coming to terms with this or, you know, at this point, in the u.s even like denying it for me like the glaciers melting in a sense is it's kind of a representation of our inability to communicate our problems with this culture in general getting into all these other issues that need to be addressed before i think we're even at uh, a starting point to work on like these hyper object things like climate change so yeah and i don't know how we do that, especially globally, if we can't even do it here amongst ourselves. Of course, man is, or the human race is adding to global warming. I think that's kind of a scientific fact now. Global warming existed before human race, but like it was a regulated controlled pattern. If you see like through time, you know, there were ups and downs, but we're just continually going up on the carbon emissions well past what was the high point of any previous period, you know, cause and effect. The higher that goes, obviously, the warmer things are going to get. And the warmer water temperatures is causing all these crazy storms, uh, more sporadic or... And does that all seem a lot more real to you after having been there and seen it yourself? Yeah, because I'm here in Texas and it's just always hot. So, like, I don't know, uh, you know, is it hotter this summer than it normally was or whatever? It seems like we're always setting records here. But just the... The rain patterns here and the storms seems to be more severe. I mean, like my house here, we have a wash in the back, a dry creek bed. It's come out of its banks twice in uh, the first three years we were here, and apparently it hadn't done that in the 40 years of the neighborhood. Yeah. Prior. So uh, just, you know, happens when we move in. <laughs> but yeah, just uh, experiencing that and sort of seeing where the glaciers used to be and the erosion I mean, there's obviously uh, something going on, but just seeing, like, the severity of it, I still can't wrap my head around how much uh, things are disappearing. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. I saw just some different phrases in reading about you and things that you had written on your website that are kind of like these dichotomies, like 
controlled, uncontrolled, ordered perfection, disordered detritus, known, unknown, and kind of like this, like you say on your website, kind of a space of tension between those, an uneasy tension. Why that tension? Why that? Why those dichotomies for you? Like, what? How does that inspire your work? Well, for me, like personally, like I'm always fighting myself, uh, but just as a decision, as as a human race that we've made on certain things, it's like a. I think we're thinking short term rather than long term always especially when it comes down to um it's like immediate gratification right Is that what you're talking about? yeah but also like say plastic you know seemed like a, a great idea at the time but now it's in everything and now they're doing molecular studies of finding plastic on a molecular level in, mm-hmm. in, in things um and then you know it's around for 450 to like forever like years it's like I think we jump onto these uh, particular innovations without, you know, really considering or studying the long-term consequences. It's the same with uh, when they're doing nuclear testing out in the Canary Islands, and now radiation is in literally in everything, even the Arctic, like ice samples in the Arctic Circle. You know, there's mm-hmm. radiation, and like, um, like what is that doing to everything and to us? So it's just this, like these huge decisions on things that we don't have the understanding or capability to fathom at the time that we go ahead with that you know changes the course of you know everything um so in my work these tensions are you know i'll use different materials that might not necessarily should go together or try to do certain processes with materials that i'm fighting but it's kind of a give and take of like how much control i can impose on these or and it gets to the point where I just kind of let it, you know, the material, if you've heard artists say this, let the material kind of tell you what it wants to do or needs yeah. to do. That's because that's what the material does. And like, you can only um, impose so much control on something before it um, kind of implodes on you or, you know, like the planet. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, or breaks down or just like goes off in another direction that you weren't aware of or, you know, you, you had no idea that that was going to happen. And, in the studio, that's can be like a good thing, but um, in the real world, that could be pretty devastating. You know, mm-hmm. or you know, evasive species that we introduce, or you know, whatever. And it's like, yeah, just actually, I just read an article about PCBs affecting the orcas, and you know, their populations. It's going to be reduced by half or something at a certain point because they're in, in becoming infertile and uh, their immune systems are depressed because of PCBs, and they're actually not going to worldwide we won't eliminate the use of those until like 2025 or something like that i saw the headline but i didn't get a chance to read the article to see what that was about it's, yeah yeah so i mean uh james baylaw called uh he calls his glaciers the canary in the global coal mine so to speak so yeah. they're kind of that warning signal that was another thing for me like going to these far off places where you know the seemingly far off and like remote like these things that are happening like you know, thousands of miles away in these remote areas or like the Arctic or wherever. And like, how does that affect me? How does that affect us here? Like, what is the, the tie-in? But, you know, if that is sort of, so to speak, the canary and those effects there are now starting to be seen everywhere. Uh, it's, uh, it was something I wanted to kind of see up front, but you really don't have to travel like to a glacier to see the effect of global warming. I mean, yeah. You just go to North Carolina, South Carolina. <laughs> right. 
have you always had that kind of a consciousness in your work? I mean, like when, how long have you been an artist? Like when did that start? It's kind of the typical artist, you know, always drawing or doing whatever from a very young age on, you know, took art classes and all the way through grade school and then uh, just went to college for art. I basically didn't have an interest or know what else to do. I literally just applied to one, one art school and I got in. Yeah. <laughs> so just kind of went from there. And when did you graduate from art school? Uh, undergrad, I graduated like 95. And then you continued going to school at some point? or Yeah, I went to graduate school um, that last semester, the last year of undergrad. I went to South Africa and then I'd missed most of the graduate school dates. So when I come back to the States, like uh, I applied to one school for graduate work. Went there for like a semester and made some work and used that to apply, not even apply, but to get myself into Las Vegas, UNLV. So I used that work and uh, the following school semester year, I went to Las Vegas for grad school. That was a three-year program, so I was there. So you're talking about maybe towards the end of the 90s, you were out of school and... Yeah, I went to graduate school, like uh, graduated in 2000, so it was like yeah. the late 90s, yeah. 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 And you've just been making work pretty consistently ever since? Yeah, um, some form or fashion. I haven't always had a studio, but always just, it's just, for better or for worse, it's something I can't get away from. I have to make something. I can only go like very short periods of time without, at the very least, just sketching or playing or messing around mm. or just generating. It's kind of the way I kind of, um, I'm obviously not very good like talking through things or verbally. It's It's work better with images and pictures and having to it's kind of the way i process or think mm. so uh, and using my hands so doing that activity in a way sort of gets my mind to a point where it's kind of open and just sort of like just subconsciously i'm processing everything that i've been taking in and then uh i'll i'll put some work and then I don't know. Then all of a sudden these ideas kind of formulate, mm. not necessarily. Yeah. So these ideas formulate, you know, I'm making work, but these ideas formulate about just things that I've read or stories I've heard or just experiences. And that's kind of how I process, I guess, you know, life, I guess. Yeah. Do you have a specific story of maybe some series of work that you've done in the past that kind of came through that kind of a process of just being open and then having an idea and then it kind of becoming a thing? Um, that was like powerful for you or meaningful? Pretty much like any of the finished work I show, like prior to getting to that stage, like, uh, I just do a lot of, uh, three-dimensionally sketching or, you know, making stuff and tearing it apart. And it's like, if it's in my studio, whether it's a piece of finished work or not, if it's in there too long, it's going to get cannibalized or like pulled into something else, you know? So I just continually kind of like working with my surroundings or whatever's around me and just creating something until I fall upon like a method or an idea or, you know, this, you know, particular process with, with a material, I have to create certain parameters, you know, to keep me from just going off on endless tangents, you know? And mm. so, you know, I'll limit them, the materials, even from like the sketching idea point, like what material am I going to use to make say the models or the process? And then what materials like I'm going to use to make the finished pieces, um, and so I'll repeat materials in certain series of works, like the sculptures, past sculptures I covered in paper. And then with the drawings, I used that same paper. I had used charcoal to cover the paper on the sculptures, but it was just a wide plane, you know, just like marking it on. 
And then with the drawings, I was trying to, that's when I first started doing the outlines of the shapes and trying to use charcoal and then cold press watercolor paper paper that has a tooth and a very fibrous, almost impossible to get like, you know, a perfect line because the tape would catch on a fiber and mm-hmm. it, then it would rip the paper or tear, you know, uh, tear where the charcoal was. And it was just a, that was kind of the battle, the give and take of like me fighting the material, fighting myself and not letting, letting it be. So you're like creating this challenge for yourself by choosing these parameters that are kind of arbitrary, but yeah, they are in a sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's just sort of like paring everything down and especially with the, just using the geometric forms and taking everything to this minimal element helps me kind of focus on creating the sculpture and the work. Otherwise, I don't think I would ever finish anything. It would just be this endless trial and error. Just too many choices. Too many choices. Yeah, it's over. You know, it's like, where do you begin? I mean, with the show, I'm trying to somehow get across the enormity and effect of a glacier. Like, how do you do that? It's like, there's no way I'm going to try and like realistically like recreate this. There are people that do that amazingly well. But for me, it was more about trying to somehow translate that idea or metaphor of the glacier and so the humanity and our issues and anxieties. So how do you make a three-dimensional object that echoes that? And with the title, Serene Disturbance, I was showing some work at one of the West Austin studio tours and a woman came in. She was looking at my work and she came in and out. She would leave and then she would come back and look at it. So... After a couple of times, I went over to talk to her. I felt like she was definitely kind of on the spectrum, the mm. autistic spectrum, because she was having like sensory overload, definitely. Luckily, the gallery was pretty empty at that point, at that moment that she was there. So she would look at the work, and she felt it kind of calming and serene, but then you know she would start picking up on the hard angles and the weird unbalanced uh, nature that I build into the pieces, which is hard for me to, as well, like to leave. I, mm. I keep wanting to make change it and make things balance. So it creates this like kind of anxiety and tension on me in the studio when I'm building these things and with well, this a whole nother story. But so she was picking up on that and then she would, she loved the work, but you know, she would get to a certain point from that uneasiness and, and tension that she would have to leave and kind of calm down and she'd come back and look at the work some more. Oh, wow. And talking to her, like she was trying to describe the work and we came up with that, that phrase and that was a few years ago Mm. so it just kind of when i was doing the show it kind of popped back into my head and um yeah i remembered that that experience so that was pretty interesting but yeah it's and part of the work is trying to make it seem like this kind of calm or serene visual but also kind of start picking up on these subtle sort of awkward or off balance like angles or balance or lines that kind of intrude and uh kind of breaks that passivity or serenity or that nature and for me that's kind of you know kind of going through life day to day sort of just passively existing but knowing in my mind in the back of my head like all these other things that are going on but we sort of block it out and And normalize or yeah it's just you know it's i don't know it's kind of an odd it's find it to be an odd existence so it feels intense but then you have to kind of pretend that it's not that intense somehow or you have to kind of act normal yeah well especially i guess right now and then when i started making this work it was like during the uh, presidential debates leading up to the election and then trump got elected so it's just like 
that whole time period, like on the radio, I was listening to NPR all day. And by the end of the day, I was so just like morally defeated and depressed and anxiety. And, you know, it hasn't gotten much better since, but we just kind of do our day to day and block a a lot of that out. I mean, otherwise, like, you know, just kind of make you crazy. But yeah, so for me, the work kind of embodies a lot of that as well. And you're saying when you're actually making the work, you have moments just like that woman did of anxiety. And how do you process or cope with those do you have to walk away and come back like she did or yeah with the show like it was pretty intense like a little less than a year that it took to build this body of work you know like um a few months in i ended up getting a full-time job didn't mean for that to happen i've been here like almost seven years and haven't been able to get a full-time job and then so when i agreed to the show it was that was not in the timetable. Yeah. Um, so that really cut out a huge chunk of studio time, which kind of really ramped up my schedule and the amount of work hours I was working in a day between the basically two jobs. Yeah. But yeah, that created a lot of anxiety right there. But, um, and then a lot of things that, you know, went along with that, but just the work itself. Yeah. It, it creates certain amount of anxiety or stress or, but that's self-imposed, you know, Is um, it like I'm going to fail. I won't be able to do this or what kind of, Thoughts or anxiety inducing. Apart from having a tiny studio and working on six or eight pieces at one time, yeah. <laughs> it's like I couldn't even turn around. Um, that was, yeah, yeah, that, that got a bit much. I'm sure. Being on such a tight time schedule and having to produce like enough work to fill up such a large space as that gallery is, uh, it I think further focused and pared the work down to its basic and minimal elements which yeah. I want to say was a benefit. Um, I mean, the gallery feels very full to me, so I don't know. Do you feel like the show is successful overall? Do you feel like you did everything you wanted to do? Uh, I don't know if you ever do everything you, you thing, want to do. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I just need some space and time to kind of yeah. like go back and look at it as an outsider, so to speak, to oh, see. Yeah. But I, I do think the show was successful. I do think that I will eventually like like the work. <laughs> Now, some some things that I do like a lot, other things, it just takes me a little time to be able to step outside of myself, in a sense, and look at the work as, like, if I went into this, to see the show, like, if someone else had made it, you know, would I appreciate this? And I think I would eventually say, yeah, this is a pretty good show. But yeah, that's kind of just the way it always is with me, because making sculpture or in, in the way that I make the work, it's such a laborious, unnecessary process in the way I do things that, you know, between the frustration and just trying to figure out the new processes and these parameters that I impose on myself, that I, just, yeah. I probably make the whole thing a lot more ridiculous than it needs to be so the labor intensive and part of it and the kind of the repetitive processes that's not something that you're enjoying or choosing to do in a way it's just kind of part of it yeah i do enjoy it a lot of materials like probably like 80 to 90 percent of the materials that i use is recycled or repurposed so i'm dealing with those materials as well which creates a lot more time of cleaning up or reprocessing or you know stabilizing you know it'd be a lot easier or more refined fine just to go buy a new piece of whatever plywood or a piece of wood or whatever um so that creates a lot of like repurposing your yeah a lot of x factors in a sense you know mm. start using this piece of wood and all of a sudden it starts delaminating or failing so i either have to like start over and replace that section or deal with it or stabilize it you know just things like that that kind of pop up along the process and also again just using materials that don't really 
necessarily is the best to combine. Um, is that also just a parameter, or is that just uh, for cost savings, or the um, or just wanting to recycle things? Yeah, it's just part of wanting to recycle things or repurpose materials, or you know, see. Uh, I was going to say, see less things go to the landfill, or yeah. maybe put off a while before it ends up there. But um, but yeah, it's just sort of a part of that aesthetic, you know. And, and it's, I think it's tied into global warming, and like I said, everything's connected. So, you know, try to do a little bit here and there for what it's worth, if anything. Um, but yeah, I, know, I do like that process and the sort of figuring that out when I have the time and ability to do that. And also when I'm not trying to do like I said, like eight pieces like that at the same time, uh, that's when it kind of gets overwhelming. And you've also done some public art too. Like what, what has that experience been like? Yeah, I did the tempo, uh, grant thing through the city of Austin. Was it two years ago now? So tempo, it's like a public art program through the city of Austin for people who kind of want to get into public art and see what that's like. Uh, it's a $10,000 grant and, you know, you have to go through this whole process of picking location, designing the work and, you know, getting all these different stages approved, you know, coming up with budgets and material lists and all this stuff, you know, that goes into public works and getting insurance and, going and giving PowerPoint presentations and for a panel and all this stuff and then getting it constructed or whatever. And then you got to manage with installation, deinstallation. It was a, it was an interesting experience. I kind of wanted to scale my work up and the only way I, you know, would be able to do that would be, you know, through a public art kind of realm of some sort. And the only way I could be able to afford that is through getting some kind of funding for public art. Um, this particular one I made myself, but to get that fabricated would be, I think, more than the, the 10 grand budget or right at it. Yeah, I think I might try it again in the future. It's like a whole different world and realm than just, you know, fine art making something and not having to worry about all these other extraneous kind of things. Yeah, um, a lot. Learning the process the first time and the work I made, like now I kind of have that knowledge and how to approach it and like redesign it and get things uh, looking to other ways of getting things done next time what are you working on now and kind of maybe what are you looking forward to in the future another show another residency or things you aspire to do or address or looking into the like the immediate future uh, i'm like my studio is like a disaster i basically need to literally empty it out and sort of rehab my studio just from trying to work out the installation of these pieces on the backwall grade dock like my studio walls have five eighths inch holes or bigger literally covering the walls yeah and the floor has covered in paint and resin and all kinds of stuff so i need to you know scrape the floor and i was ended up because of the heat i was sanding and doing construction in there so everything's just covered in fine dust so Mm Once we get my studio back to a semi-pristine state, I think I might <laughs> try some drawing. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I, I kind of want to continue with uh, doing drawings based on the sculptures. One thing that's come out of doing these geometric forms, uh, seeing the photographs of them, I'm kind of impressed by the 2D image of the sculpture, like quicker than I am by the sculpture itself. But mm. I, th- I think because like the photograph is something I didn't do, so I'm, I'm removed from it. And like, so looking at the image, I'm looking at something that I didn't make or do. I don't know. Maybe that's why I can look at the photo, the photograph more objectively than the yeah. actual sculpture, you know, so soon, but like, but just seeing the, the photograph of my works, like a lot of them look like 
paintings or drawings just from the photograph itself. And I found that interesting, so I want to play with that, that idea a little more. And then, you know, I picked up on that idea in Iceland of just, just drawing and sketching kind of frees me to come up with other ideas. Like the the piece on the title wall of the show is just this little modest, like, gouache painting of all the 12 shapes of the rock. And they're just kind of floating out and, you know, on the white space of the paper. Just kind of a random little uh, painting drawing I did, you know, as I was playing around with those shapes at the studio. And then that ended up making the installation of the back wall like I used the same layout used those shapes to create sculptures and used the same layout as that painting uh, to lay out the back wall that generated 12 sculptures for that wall so you know just doing little things like that but also trying to create maybe somewhat uh, finished drawings and collages but working towards the goal of you know those are coming off the sculptures and then these drawings and collages will generate ideas for new sculptures you know it's just kind of a cycle hmm. that I'm kind of falling into Nice. Um, far as shows go, I'm part of Icosa now, and we have uh, a show coming up for East Austin mm-hmm. Studio Tour. Uh, so we're going to do a member show that goes up a couple of weeks before East. So I'm trying to get a piece finished for that, and that's coming up in November, I think. Yeah. I always try to imagine that these interviews are being heard by younger artists who are just kind of starting out, or they just don't know what it's all about, you know, or do you want to explore that at all? Do you feel like you have anything to say about just kind of the, the life of an artist or kind of things that you figured out that you, that might help someone else? To I mean, hear? I don't think it's something I ever necessarily really figured out very well myself. I know certain people like you interviewed Deborah Roberts where she gave herself like two years yeah. to do it. And uh, she did it. Um, but that was after a, a long time of, yeah, I mean, like just, yeah, no recognition doing other jobs and doing your art on the side or whatever. And I think a lot of us do that. I'm doing that. And I've had a lot of tangents where I kind of stopped doing art. I don't know if I can say that I do it professionally. I mean, I would like to think so, but like, that's not my, you know, it's not my job, you know, it's not like I'm making a living off making work professionally, you know, I haven't figured out how to make that work or that avenue. I think it might be a little harder with sculpture, but I don't know. I don't know how to, to get it out there and make those connections. Again, like I get off on crazy tangents. Like I went, I have a teaching credential in special education. I taught special education mm. for about three years. When I was doing that, like my art creativity went down to almost nil because of just the amount of time that that takes. Like teaching, Intensity, especially special education. Yeah. yeah, it was. You know, think of people have teaching jobs but it's it's kind of like our it's a lifestyle it's like a whole nother thing that was like an extreme time period as well but yeah. it's something i fall back onto occasionally like when i first moved to austin the only jobs were that i was finding was kind of back in that social service or um special education realm i worked in a, an adult facility with adults with like you know high cognitive functioning but you know they had certain disabilities and then i worked at a sort of a foster care facility for for kids with severe emotional disturbances and that's what i did when i taught like i taught high school a year for um kids with severe emotional disturbances and i taught middle school as well so how does working with those people make you look at your life differently or kind of approach your life or gratitude or whatever, you know? Yeah. Just working with that community. I mean, the job's intense, like, you know, physically and just, yeah, the job is kind of, emotionally, I would Yeah, it's an intense job, but definitely emotionally, um, it's very overwhelming and you have to have certain kind of mentality or mindset or like resolve. It's like, I'm amazed about 
to work in that environment for that many years where, you know, I was working in a, a place here and after six months, like the position opened and they offered me a full-time job. And I was like, I needed a full-time job, but there's no way I can make this like a career choice path. It's like, I, I can't take this like emotionally, mentally, phys yeah. physically is affecting me physically, you know? So, you know, I quit. I mean, there's people there that have been doing it for decades or more. Some people kind of thrive off that environment and can be uh, creative and create beneficial outcomes and be very helpful in that kind of environment, you know, knowing how to, to deal and counteract in those situations. But yeah, like you're saying, like knowing these kids and these people and they have their moments, they're great people, but they're so dysfunctional and messed up, you know, to such a degree that it's not their fault. You know, it's just the environment they grew up in and what was done to them. So is creating this outcome for them emotionally because they, they don't know how to to cope with that and how could you and it's pretty, pretty it was pretty intense but i'm like what are my problems and issues compared to like what these people are dealing with or you know at the adult place i had a guy he, he was my guy like uh he'd always hit me up we'd go out for coffee that was his thing to get out of the place and feel to feel normal yeah it's like we'd go out together and have coffee sometimes he wouldn't want me around he would i would just sit like off to the side or something and he'd sit there by himself you know trying to be a normal person mm. and he was a paranoid schizophrenic so it was always pretty interesting going out with him and seeing how he read the situation or translate certain people's behaviors or you know i wasn't allowed to you know the facility i worked at we had like a shirt you know that had the company logo on it or whatever and I wasn't allowed to wear that shirt out with him and I wasn't allowed. He wouldn't tell me like what coffee shop he wanted to go to because he didn't want me telling the manager where we were going. He didn't want to be, you know, in any way tracked or associated with the facility. And like we drove like a minivan and it had like a number on the back corner of the window, just like this random sticker of a number. And it's like, I couldn't park in the front of the store or the coffee shop I have to, had to park off to the side so no one could see that number on the van you know he had all these like yeah little rules for us to go out and have coffee i mean it sounds like you did that type of work at a lot of different places what did you yeah learn about yourself um, or how is it, has that affected your art at all you know well just getting like training in special education and going to school it kind of helped me to be more patient Prior to that, working in the art field, you know, with other artists and curators and people, I feel like the arts industry and profession has a lot of people that are probably on these spectrums, you know? Yeah. And it's like, I get re like really aggravated or frustrated or like short on patience or just not deal well with certain personalities or people. But after kind of getting over myself and getting an education and being able to step outside of myself and just learning and growing up, you know, as a kid, you know, a kid then out of school, just kind of growing up and learning how to cope with other personalities and, and other, you know, just having a degree in special education really helps you, I think, as an artist, <laughs> just uh, navigating the uh, the social aspect of museums and galleries and working in the scene. Yeah. Um, but also just dealing with the kids I taught and the other adults in the facilities was just like, you know, I think no matter what my problems and issues are, it's just like it doesn't even compare to what these people uh, deal with on a daily basis. And then, uh, but yet they're still able to be 
content and happy. Mm. I think it comes down to like, why aren't people content? And I think it's like, people don't know how to live with themselves. And I think we spend a lot of time trying to avoid that endeavor. Cause like before we were recording, like you made, I made the remark of not knowing myself and I don't know if I do really, truly like really, what do I believe? And like truly, what are my values when it comes down to it? When confronted with specific you know, when it comes down to that, mm-hmm. that specific time, it's, I think on a, one of that spectrum, it's like they change, you know, they change as you grow and get older and you learn more information. And then I was talking about culture, the way that you're taught certain things and these factors that you're given when you're younger or you grow up with, or, you know, it's kind of like these set parameters that are arbitrary in a sense and aren't necessarily true or right. Mm-hmm. But it's just uh, how you've been taught to progress or coordinate your life. But then when you run into other people with different beliefs or, you know, sort of governing guidelines or whatever, then you have to kind of rethink who or what it is you're doing. I just had this idea. It almost <clears throat> makes me think of like someone else giving you the parameters for your own work. Because you're talking about like you have these parameters for your work and you're talking about these parameters that are kind of given to us by our, you know, nature, nurture parents or whatever. It's kind of, Mm -hmm. it seems like there's association there. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And, and I think part of it too is like you have these guidelines that you grow up with and these parameters and guidelines you set for yourself in the studio, but then having to, the know-how or ability to kind of step outside of those and see those for what they are or what they're not, and then letting go of certain ones and keeping the ones that are most effective or that are working. Yeah. And then uh, going from there, because I definitely left to let go of a few things, you know. Um, yeah. Like like what? Um, well, at this past show, like, you know, I had mentioned, like, I was doing the outlines, trying to use the same materials I was using in the sculpture with the charcoal and the paper or whatever. And then I was in crit group through the contemporary um, oh, yeah. a couple of years ago. And so I showed those drawings. They liked the drawings. They were, they were cool with the imperfections and sort of the, like, you know, being able to see that they were handmade or whatever, or the struggle that I did. But when it came down to like, this is the material I used in the sculpture or whatever, most people didn't really care. It didn't really affect their view of the work. So that was like one of the biggest impetus or reason for me, you know, was to use the materials to carry that theme through the work from the sculptures into the drawings of the sculptures. And in the end, it did, to the viewer, it was arbitrary and didn't matter, but caused such strife and stress for me that, you know, some of those drawings that I showed that were still imperfect, I redid like three times, mm-hmm. you know, but in the end, it had no meaningful effect for them very few people the other folks that i showed them to that were you know makers or into process oriented stuff they got it but the other other folks that were designers and photographers and whatnot painters and didn't matter so with the gray duck show like i dropped the charcoal and i went to a mad acrylic paint and it worked out a lot better not perfectly but you know i wasn't fighting that material plus Mm. charcoal is you know it's such a lush beautiful material but then once you fix it it, or you know try to put the spray on it or it changes the quality of it and for me it just kind of ruins it so and you can't i can't just leave it like raw pastel i mean i spent like weeks or months trying to figure out how to fix the pastel where it didn't uh, alter the visual effect of it so much and i couldn't figure it out nothing that i liked anyways so i just ended up switching material and the world still went on. It yeah. didn't matter. 
It seems like you have to keep questioning all these things all the time, like these choices. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? Or these roles? Yeah, that. I mean, that was kind of one key thing that I picked up in undergrad that they kind of drilled into you. It was like every decision, you know, with art, you're having someone look at this thing you make. And so everything that they're looking at has an intention, whether you considered it or not. Like it's every decision you make, um, every decision that you don't make or, you know, you pass off or nothing in a piece of art where nothing in that artwork is like, it's kind of an arbitrary thing. It's everything has a meaning regardless, you know? So yeah. So with the gray duck show, yeah, I wish I had more time to kind of really kind of comb over everything and really be comfortable with the final details of every, every scratch and crack and, Mm. you know, paint smudge and and rough edge and a lot of that was intentional uh, given my subject and the point i was trying to get across but some of the surfaces like i redid multiple times but then it's like fighting the material and i got it to a place where i can accept you know and just let it go because yeah i could probably work the same piece for many many months which i did right out of grad school when i got a studio in la and then like didn't really have anything lined up or whatnot so i started making work and i literally would sand the same piece for three months (laughs) so uh so yeah sounds pretty intense um well i guess i'll say if anyone's hearing this before october 28th of 2018 they should go see your work at gray duck gallery and if they want to learn more about you go to your website yeah, we um, just got images of the show uploaded. Yeah, they look great. Colin Doyle did a great job with, with uh, photographing those, and uh, quite happy with those. It's not that often that I get a chance to shoot my work in such a great gallery as Grey Duck. Um, yeah, so I definitely wanted to get that documented for prosperity and to use as a jumping-off point for the future, because I'll use these for applying to everything coming up. Yeah, it sounds like it. But yeah, and uh, definitely go if you haven't been to Grey Duck Gallery. Um, uh, Jill and Mark are amazing people, and they are uh, a huge part of the Austin art scene. I think they're, it'd be safe to say, they call them an institutional part of the community now. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for your time, Damien. I really uh, th- appreciate it. Well, thank you, and I hope there was some coherent thoughts in there. <laughs> uh, absolutely, there were. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care. 